A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we're heading across the pond. Tell us, Alex, who we've got on today. We've got Ian Garner with us today. Now, Ian is a Brit, but he's uh, currently in Canada. Um, But we're only popping over there to collect him. And then we are heading back east uh, to talk about the Soviet Union and Russian cultural responses to the Second World War. Ian, welcome. How is Ontario in lockdown? Good morning. Well, we're not quite in lockdown. We're uh, in sort of uh, obliged social distancing mood. And so far, everyone is behaving super well. I've been really impressed with how responsible people have been. Um, Of course, it's a strange time, but I think people are coming together and looking out for each other. So hopefully things won't get quite as bad here as they have been in, in some parts of the world. Yeah, Canada seems to be a lot more sensible than than Britain and and everywhere else, basically. Canadians are sensible. Um, Let's kick off. I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say because um, we've not yet covered sort of the Soviet side of World War II. So, Alina, kick us off with a question. So, our first question goes, what did the Soviets call the Second World War and why? Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the key events that shaped it for the Soviet people? Absolutely. So the Soviets know the Second World War, and indeed the Russians still know the Second World War as the Great Patriotic War, or sometimes you might see it translated as the Great Fatherland War. This is a really important phrase because it refers back to a couple of important things in Russia's history. So the most obvious comparison is the War of 1812, which is when Napoleon invades Russia, and as almost everybody knows, fails miserably in the winter and is turned back in defeat at Moscow. This was called the Great Fatherland War, and of course was um, memorialized or hail-lauded, described to great acclaim by Tolstoy in War and Peace, which is one of the major cultural touch points of the Soviet experience, the Second World War as well. Um, It also refers to the First World War, which was sometimes known as the Great Fatherland War in Russia and the Soviet Union, although of course that was less important because it was seen as as an imperial war, a czarist war that the Russians were very glad to be rid of when the revolution happened in 1917. And so right at the beginning of the war, as soon as the war kicks off, the Germans invade expectedly or unexpectedly, depending on who you ask. This is a very controversial topic right now because... The Putin government is doing a lot of, um, let's say, shady work, trying to kind of rewrite the history of how much the Russians and Germans worked together before June 1941, when the Germans invade. But invade they do. Um, And immediately, the propaganda chiefs and ministers of government decide that they're going to call this the Great Patriotic War. Um, The Molotov 
who is fairly well known for having a type of cocktail named after him, um, goes, on the, goes on the radio the same day of the invasion and says, you know, this is a great and important war. And the next day in Pravda, which is one of the leading newspapers, what a columnist or editorial writer announces that this is to be called the Great Patriotic War. That name sticks. And even now, if you ask many Russians, did Russia fight in World War II? They'll say, well, no, not really. We fought in the Great Patriotic War. So I think the difference in terms is important, partly because the fighting actually kind of starts a little bit earlier than June 1941 on two fronts. Firstly, there is a brief war with uh, Japan in Mongolia um, at a place called Halkin Gol, where the Soviets beat back the Japanese in 1939, and partly because through late 1939 to early 1940, there is a war with Finland as well, which goes devastatingly badly for the Soviet Union, which had expected to basically just march into Finland and take all of the territory that it had lost after the uh, 1917 revolution back again. And so what happens in the Soviet war? Well, the attack is expected by the government and has been built up to in propaganda and culture for some years through the 1930s. Soviet culture invents itself as an anti-fascist culture through the 1930s, and the people are primed to expect a war with Germany or a major conflict of some sort with the forces of fascism, which seem to be working everywhere and are often portrayed as these sort of dark, shady forces in, in culture and in movies. Um, the experience of the first few months of the war for the Soviet Union, though, is tragically bad. Huge swathes of territory are lost very, very rapidly. Things are in total chaos. Nobody really knows what's happening. It's clear that the military leadership isn't really ready for the war. Lots of errors are made. People don't know what's happening on the ground. And very little of this is reported very clearly in the newspapers. This is a topic that we'll, I expect, come back to. Um, ultimately, though, by December 1941, the Soviets just about managed to stave off defeat at Moscow. So once again, this is a link to the Great Patriotic War of 1812 and Napoleon, when the French forces are turned back at Moscow. Once again, Moscow seems to be important. Then through 1942, there's a bit of a lull until the fall when Stalingrad happens. And again, we'll, we'll get to talking about that. But basically after Stalingrad, which ends in February 1943, the Soviets are mostly on the front foot. Of course, a huge amount of soldiers are still lost. More soldiers, I believe, were lost after Stalingrad than before leading up to the Soviets marching through Eastern Europe and eventually being the force to take Berlin, which, as you can imagine, has a great cultural significance and is a symbol of pride. Yeah, let's look at this one particular battle. It's the battle for Russians, isn't it, on the Soviets, with an outline. How significant is Stalingrad in terms of the Soviet war? Military strategists will argue about this endlessly. And I don't necessarily want to get into those arguments because I'm, I'm not a military man. I, I'm not too experienced with tactics and strategy. Mm -hmm. Many will argue that Moscow is the real turning point of the war. Some might argue that the Soviets were just really never likely to win the war for a number of reasons. The German supply lines leading into Russia are never good. Um, the Soviet production of arms, tanks and planes is always big enough. And of course, the population is big enough that they can afford to take huge losses and the chances of Germany ever managing to really invade and control a country this large are just slim to none. However, however, we get to the point where 
we the Germans had lost at Moscow in December 1941. There was a bit of a lull in the fighting for a few months, more or less. Um, and then the Germans hatched this plan, Operation Blue, it's called. In June 1941, they start a huge offensive whereby they aim to drive forward very rapidly all the way down to the Caucasus and the oil fields that are there, cut off the Soviet Union's oil supply, and thereby win the war by ceasing the Soviet arms and industrial production. However, between the Germans and those oil fields is a city called Stalingrad. Today it's uh, Volgograd, and it's had another name in its past as well that we'll get to. Uh, this is a city that is sitting on the River Volga, which is one of the main arteries that goes through Russia, and it has a great cultural significance for Russian culture as well as Soviet culture. And, of course, this is the city named after Stalin. Uh, Grad simply means city in Russian, so it's like Stalinville or Stalin town. Um, and what happens is the Germans are, very unexpectedly for them, bogged down in street fighting at Stalingrad. So that by... September 1942, having expected to see Stalingrad fairly easily and keep driving towards those oil fields in the Caucasus, they are stuck in what is incredibly vicious and bloody street fighting in the city of Stalingrad. The front line weaves through basements, apartments, cellars, houses. Sometimes there are Germans at the top of an apartment block and the Russians are at the bottom or vice versa. Things are very chaotic and extremely bloody. This is known as one of the bloodiest battles in history. About a million people die on each side. And through those months of September and October, the fate of the Soviet Union really is perceived as hanging in the balance. And millions, millions of men are poured into this battle, and women as well. This is an often forgotten fact that many, many women were fighting for the Soviets on the Eastern Front along with minorities who are non-Russian. So if I keep calling it the Russian war, I, I, I apologize to people from Central Asia, to Ukrainians and others who are also involved in the fighting there. Um, and by early November, the Germans try a sort of miniature counter-attack counter at Stalingrad, which loses. Um, it doesn't go particularly well for them. And then on November the 19th, the Russians launch, or the Soviets, uh, launch this enormous counterattack Operation Uranus, it's pretty improbable. It's, it's a chancy kind of a thing. But basically, this is the big turning point of the war. November the 19th goes down in Russian history and Soviet history is the moment when the war is won. What happens is that the German Sixth Army is encircled fairly rapidly and is this is where most of the images that Westerners would know of Stalingrad come from, of German troops freezing in the cold, starving, eating horse meat, rats, anything they can get hold of. And by January, it's the battle is really done. Those Germans are set in, they're stuck in Stalingrad, they're certain to lose. Hitler refuses to help. He sees this as a, as a mark of great shame, that he's kind of waged his reputation um, on taking Stalingrad, and then it doesn't go well. So he refuses to help. He refuses to make any effort to uh, get the Germans out, and he forbids them from surrendering as well. But surrender they do in early February. The German Sixth Army is captured, um, and many thousands are imprisoned. 
a huge majority of those die in Soviet imprisonment, and many are turned into slave laborers. So lots don't see uh, don't see home again. But for the Soviets, this is this is basically it. This is the turning point where, in September October 1942, people genuinely believe that the Soviet Union is going to fall, and what that means for them, given the kind of opponent they're facing, is not just losing a war and having territory ceded, uh, having territory ceded to Germany not just a change of government, this means destruction. This means absolute obliteration. This was not like the war on the Western Front, where captured Western troops, English, American, French troops, were treated not well, but were expecting to survive, and where puppet regimes were put in place in in France and in Scandinavia and in other countries. Hitler sees the Slavs as a race to be enslaved. And so for Russians, losing at Stalingrad comes to mean total obliteration. We will be enslaved, our people will be murdered, butchered, and that will be the end of Russian culture as we see it, that will be the end of the Soviet Union. So this about turn that happens in November, this Operation Uranus, where suddenly we go from almost certainty that that we're going to die, this is it for us, to making huge gains in territory comes as this great kind of bolt from the blue and people and we can talk more about maybe how this idea was formed people interpret this as a kind of a resurrection mm-hmm. this is a turn from darkness to light and this is the huge cultural significance of stalingrad for russians it just sounds really horrible and dark and just really depressing it it is incredibly depressing it's a kind of brutal warfare that I don't think the world had ever really quite seen before. This is a war of annihilation, and there are many reasons for it. Technological, um, especially in Stalingrad. Stalin doesn't want to lose the city named after himself, and also a city that he had defended as a, as a general in the Russian Civil War that happened after the revolution, and there was a great sort of... Um, this legendary production about Stalin, the general, and this great historical effort to turn back the forces of the whites and the czar in 1918-1919 in the Russian Civil War. And therefore, he was willing to, to throw so much material and arms, munition, and of course, people into the battle. But the, the accounts of the fighting are, are truly horrendous. There is an excellent book by a historian who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Svetlana Alexievich, who was Belarusian, where she went round and interviewed women who were, who were fighting in, um, in the war, and there are some accounts of Stalingrad in there that are just absolutely shocking, of people who describe not just fear, not just the expectation that we're going off to, to possibly die, but the idea of crossing the Volga, this great... Russian sort of folk river of Russian life and and national patriotic importance, believing they're crossing into what they term as, as a living hell and expecting to die, accepting that they're going to die, that there is no coming back of, of troops who are, who are injured and believe, well, well, that's it. I will just throw myself into the breach. Everything's over, but it doesn't matter because I'm fighting for a greater cause, what's often by the Russians term for a just cause. This is a phrase that you might come across from time to time in Russian culture, and this is, this is where it comes from. 
in the years following this horrific battle, I mean, that's all we can say it is. It was, it was just horrific. Let's go back, for example, 20 years. It reaches cult-like proportions, doesn't it? And all of this begins with the journalists on the ground when the battle is taking place. Who were they and what did they write about? Absolutely. So you're right that the the story, the myth or the, the cult, however you're gonna you're gonna term it, and we can get into why and how it's called that over as as we talk, is essentially produced on the ground by a bunch of writers who are in Stalingrad. In June 1941, to rewind a little bit further, as soon as the war breaks out, the Soviet leadership realize that they're going to need great propaganda and they're going to need a great cultural effort to motivate people to fight for the war. And so, although things are extremely chaotic, what they do is they turn over the newspapers and the newspapers are the most important means of, of cultural production and spreading messages during the war, simply because it's easier to produce and disseminate a newspaper than it is a novel or a, a movie or even a radio broadcast in a country as large as, as the Soviet Union. They turn these newspapers, Pravda, um, which is the one everybody knows, Red Star, which is the next leading newspaper, uh, several other national newspapers and hundreds of smaller newspapers and army newspapers to a group of people who are essentially authors, literary writers who've been writing prose through the 1920s and 1930s. Um, many of these people are not the kind of image that you might have of Soviet propagandists. So what we get is a bunch of people who are suddenly called by patriotism and the government, 20, 30 people who are sent off to the front lines and asked, go write stories, go write brilliant fiction, really write brilliant prose, write brilliant poetry about what is happening at the front, the things you're experiencing, the things you're seeing, and we will print it on the front pages of the newspapers every single day for four years. And so almost everything you know about Stalingrad all the images that you have of the burning river, the oil silos on fire, that house-to-house -house fighting, people stuck in basements, all of those images in Russian language, verbatim, word for word, they still exist today, come from this group of people who are writing at the front. And so we have these phenomenally successful Soviet writers, great writers. The most famous probably is Vasily Grossman, in the West, who is the author of Life and Fate, which is a relatively well-known novel about Stalingrad, which there is a very long story about how it came to be, but it was banned ultimately in the Soviet Union in, when it was produced in 1960, 61, and was smuggled out to the West on microfilm and, and published in the West. Um, people like Konstantin Simonov, who is a less well-known name, but incredibly famous as a Russian author, and he is a great war author. He has a real talent for, for writing. And what's interesting about some of these writers is that many of them were not really that keen on the Soviet regime in the 20s and 30s. People wrestled with what it meant to be a Soviet citizen, with whether they could participate in writing for the regime in the 30s when the purges, the terror was at its height. But as soon as the war comes, even the people who are, were the most reticent are willing to go off and, and fight. And the way the writers do that is by fighting with their pens. This, without wanting to get too theoretical, 
the Soviets believed that writing and printing material is just as important for waging war as fighting with a gun, fighting with grenades and bombs. And so these writers are seen as frontline soldiers, which is rather interesting because in the West, I think we think of war writers and war artists as people who kind of attacked on to the real fighting troops, but they're not soldiers. They accompany, they observe, but they're not participants. In the Russian imagination, in the Soviet imagination, these people are seen as soldiers. And indeed, things are so chaotic and difficult at the front, especially in these early years, but they have to go and fight. They do pick up guns, and so they go off to the front lines in search of interesting stories to write about, and they find themselves in the middle of a firefight. There's a great story about Konstantin Simonov, who went to the tractor factory in Stalingrad, which was one of the major points of, of fighting, and was in the trenches trying to interview someone. There was a lull in the fighting at this point, and suddenly some Germans hove into view from somewhere or other, and he basically has to throw his notebook away. He picks up a machine gun and he starts shooting at them and he's shooting at planes and shooting at troops. These people are real soldiers as well as being writers, which is quite unique. And so what happens is these men, two dozen or so, some of them less well-known than the names I've mentioned, are in the thick of it, in the fighting, living at the front, working with the troops, getting to know them, and feeding back this, what turns out to be great prose that's published in the newspapers and followed by millions of Russians. So if you're behind the lines, you're able to kind of follow along vicariously and find out what's going on. And they produce what is known as Stalingrad today. And what is surprising perhaps to Western, uh, to Western observers might be that they're accorded really quite a lot of freedom to write about what they want. There is a great deal of censorship still happening, but this is the material they produce isn't just produced top down. They're not sent off with a message from the Kremlin to go and write about this, write about this. You must include that or you mustn't include that. They're allowed to go off and find the best. And of course, there is some, some selection and massaging when it gets back to the editorial offices in the Kremlin. But what they write is really quite a genuine expression of what's going on. And it's patriotic and inspirational stuff. It draws on Russian literature. It draws on Tolstoy, War and Peace. It draws on the best of Soviet literature and packages it up into this story of hell and death. And then this astounding resurrection in November when suddenly light bursts forth in these stories and life itself seems possible again. This lays out the narrative of what Stalingrad is to become and what the war is to become in the Soviet Union for decades to come. And even now, things pretty much still revolve around this kernel of an idea of resurrection. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, yeah, you have, so we've started, or this this cult, if you like, has started with an incredibly effective documentation of what people saw, but it, it morphed into something beyond that as well, doesn't it? In the aftermath of the war for the rest of the 1940s, Stalingrad is then used as a vehicle to deify Stalin, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it really happens before the start of the war. So one thing you'll notice if you're foolish enough to spend months like I did reading Soviet newspapers from the entire period of the war is that the war breaks out in June 1941 and Stalin's kind of absent. So Molotov is the one who is sent out to make the radio broadcast on the day that the Germans invade, and Stalin keeps his head below the parapet until one of the first days of July. I don't remember, but 10 days, two weeks or so. There is no word from Stalin, who is, of course, the great leader, and that doesn't need too much explaining that he's at the centre of this cult. And then throughout the first couple of years of the war, the great Stalin, who is the leader and has been shoved down everyone's throats in propaganda and speeches and just daily life in every imaginable way, just isn't in the newspapers very much. I mean, the reason is is fairly obvious, right? That when you're losing a lot and ceding a lot of territory and things are going well, we don't want to associate Stalin's name with defeat. But as soon as Stalingrad's is won, Stalin's name starts popping up with more and more regularity. And the narrative that is wound around this is the idea that Stalingrad is a brilliantly envisioned piece of foresight. It is a trap. That we will lure the Germans to Stalingrad, the site of Comrade Stalin's great victory in the Civil War in Saritin, and we will defeat the enemy once again. And it doesn't matter how many people had to die. This was a martyrdom. It was a sacrifice that meant something and could be rationalized by saying this was all Stalin's plan the whole time. And then through the late 40s, what we find is the republication of many of the stories that were published in the newspapers. Huge amounts of copies of these were published, but they are edited. They are edited to include more of Stalin so that Stalin often bookends what otherwise had been accorded to ordinary troops, officers, and generals, so that everything seems like Stalin is at the center of uh, at the center of the story, and then things after the war get really weird. Um, so what we find is that these accounts of ordinary people in war and the actions and thoughts and, and desires and fears of ordinary people at war are all subjugated to this cult of Stalin as God to the point where people go uh, are said to have gone into war desperate to be baptized by being accepted into the communist party where people pray to comrade stalin when they're injured or when they're in the trenches quite literally i am not using the word pray as a sort of uh, as a metaphor or analogy they literally pray to stalin I, I think this really peaks. There is a movie from 1941, sim- uh, 1949, I apologize, simply called The Battle of Stalingrad. It is a three-hour epic, 
don't watch it. It's really hard to watch. <laughs> but it's a, it's a huge production, big budget. It combines documentary footage with uh, filmed acted footage. And in it, Stalin basically stays the whole of the movie in his office at the Kremlin. He's bathed in light. He barely moves in the film. He just sort of mutters these orders, points at a map, gestures to something. And then we cut to seeing scenes on the ground of great victories happening. Almost like this godlike Stalin can simply motion his hand and will victory out of nothing. And it's, it's a very odd thing to watch this. But people really believed it in the Soviet Union. People really believed in the idea of Stalin as God. There is an account by the writer Ilya Ehrenburg, who was another of the writers who was writing for the newspapers during the war and is <clears throat> well known as a, as a Jewish Soviet writer, as someone who didn't always see eye to eye with the regime, but who said in the 1950s that a kind of faith was lifted from us when Stalin died and it was revealed to the public at large all of the things that, well, many of the things that had gone on, people were shocked. They didn't really believe that Comrade Stalin, this, this godlike figure, could possibly have done these things. And so then we move into the 50s and 60s, we start to see this battle for the memory of Stalingrad and the memory of the war. Who won it? Was it Stalin? Was it ordinary people? Was it officers? This is when things get really murky and there's a lot of tension around the memory of the war. This is uh, really interesting um, because you, I think you've already started to touch on the fact that it be it becomes um, more than just the memory of a battle and starts to become uh, Soviet propaganda in the 40s. But so Stalin does die in 1953 um, and this stuff does come out, but the cult of Stalingrad doesn't fizzle out, does it? What happens under Khrushchev? So, I mean, broadly speaking, if you're not an expert in Russian history, Khrushchev follows Stalin. There's a bit of a power struggle. Khrushchev, interestingly, um, was actually at Stalingrad. Um, he was one of, the, one of the leading figures in the party and spent pretty much the entire battle in fighting in the battle and taking a leadership role there. And so Stalingrad is known as this great resurrection, this great turning point. And it's basically been used as this moment to, to justify the continued existence of the Soviet regime. And Khrushchev can't let go of that, partly because of his own role at Stalingrad, which has been used as a way to build his own career and build a bit of a myth of personality around, around him. But also because victory in the war gives the regime this opportunity to say that everybody in the country owes the victors in the war a great moral debt. And who are the victors in the war? Who led us to victory? Well, it was Stalin. It was Stalin, but, you know, there were many mistakes made, and therefore we need to extricate the myth of Stalingrad, the story of Stalingrad, from this story of Stalin. But... Who won the battle, really? We go back to more of what the story actually was in the early 1940s, and that is this story of generals and officers, slightly more ordinary people, who won the battle. And there is a period in the late 1950s and early 60s when the, the de-Stalinization, as it's sometimes known, becomes 
so kind of literal that books and uh, stories about Stalingrad are reprinted without anything that mentions Stalingrad, that mentions Stalin, even the name Stalingrad, which becomes Volgograd in the 1960s. And so the battle is known as the Battle on the Volga, and the city is simply called Volgograd, or sometimes Tsaritsyn, so they use any synonym they can so that Stalin himself isn't mentioned at all. Then what happens after Khrushchev is that Brezhnev comes in in 1964, Khrushchev is pushed out, and the cult really reaches its peak under Brezhnev. When all elements of humanity, I would say, of, of the kind of touching and very intimate nature of some of the experiences described in the early Stalingrad stories and the early Stalingrad novels become completely subjugated to this idea of what a very well-known American scholar called Nina Tumarkin calls the cult of the great patriotic war. This is the idea that Brezhnev, in, Brezhnev is in charge and the elderly generation of Soviet uh, leaders are in charge because they won the war. Nobody else gets a say. Everybody else owes them this debt. And the cult becomes monumental. And I think very distant from the experiences of ordinary people. This ever-changing memory of Stalingrad, this way it bends and changes according to the current regime, is it actually culturally unique to Russia and the Soviet Union? That's a really big and complicated question. In some <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> broadly speaking, I would say, I'm going to be really annoying and say yes and no. Um, you wouldn't be a historian if you gave me a straight answer. Let's face it. Yeah. We're Sorry, all I've genetically incapable, aren't we? <laughs> now it's time to complicate things. I mean, no. We, we see memory being repurposed in this way, especially around wars in all of the countries that fought in, in the war. We see this, I mean, Speaking from a British perspective, you see it most in this myth of the Blitz, right? And the Blitz spirit that comes back and occasionally we call on it and rewrite it and rethink it. Which is episode six of this podcast, if you haven't listened to uh, Josh Levine talking about the Blitz spirit. <laughs> so we, we see this kind of repurposed and reused and summoned forth to interact with the present in some way whether it's Brexit, whether it's the coronavirus, whether it's all sorts of things. But I think the Soviet Union and Russia really take this to new heights so that the myth of the war and especially of Stalingrad becomes the dominant cultural force in Russia and the Soviet Union, really starting in 1945, reaching a peak in the 70s and 80s when in 1985, which is the 40th anniversary of the war and really just before the turning point when the Soviet Union starts to open up towards the West and censorship is relaxed and so on and so forth. All that is talked about in culture, all that seems to be talked about in movies is the war. Over and over and over again, it's endlessly reimagined, reworked as it interacts with the present. And, and that doesn't stop. You know what, you're saying it doesn't stop and it's fascinating because we had um, another guest on talking about Putin and this is essential listening really for anyone who wants to comprehend Putin and his current uh, game, if you like, 
of rewriting historical events to suit his own means today. It, he's not just in isolation decided to do this. It's cultural. It's a Russian cultural thing. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about Putin for a bit? Uh, yeah, go on. Uh, did you know what? Just tell us uh, quickly, um, rethinking the memory of it um, in terms of today and Putin. Aren't they starting to regard their uh, conflict and issues with the Ukraine as a new Stalingrad? So this is, this is interesting. Can I rewind to the 1990s? Of course. So I think it, in the West, we imagine the 1990s is the fall of the Soviet, the Soviet Union, the end of the Iron Curtain, and that Russians would just go charging off towards the West and towards Western liberal ideas with open arms as if that's all they'd ever wanted. As we know, looking back, that didn't really happen. And what happens to the war is, the, or the memory of the war is very interesting in the 1990s, in that there is, there is this great kind of battle between those who want to become more Western, those who want to forget about the war, forget about the past, kind of overcome it in some way, and those who double down on this myth of the war. And there is, there is this right-wing conservative journal, Nash Savrimenik, our contemporary, where throughout the 1990s, they're posting, or not posting, sorry, nobody was posting in the 1990s. <laughs> I just can't conceive of a world without the internet. Um, <laughs> This journal was, was producing and printing these stories that were really increasingly nationalistic, scary, scary stuff where the memory of war and having beaten the Germans became more and more xenophobic, more and more outright racist, I would say, and more and more macho and aggressive. And the idea is that we can't possibly accept Western help. West, the West is evil, it's culturally deleterious. There are all sorts of terrible things going on over there. It's, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, basically. And Russia is pure because it won the war. And so these ideas are always bubbling away through the 90s, even though on the other hand, there is this great kind of postmodern taking apart of the memory of the war in some areas. And there's all sorts of comedies that poke fun at the war and, and satires, parodies, reimaginings of what the war might have been like. But I, I don't think in popular culture this, this memory of the war as being central to Russian identity was ever really challenged or questioned. And I, I, I'm not saying it necessarily should have been, I'm just, or shouldn't have been, but it wasn't. And so when Putin is elected in 2000, decides to take the country in this more nationalistic direction, he relies increasingly on memory of the war. And having veterans speak on his behalf and producing more books, producing more movies and more music and more arts about the war. And so Putin fairly regularly goes to visit Stalingrad and on the site of some of the heaviest fighting at Stalingrad, um, there is the Motherland Calls Monument, the massive statue of that woman with the, the sword held out wide. It's, it will be the first image you find if you Google for Stalingrad mon Monument or even Volgograd today. And there is this great sort of memorial complex that was built through the 1960s and opened under Brezhnev. There's this enormous sort of circular, circular room, copper, 
copper lined with, with flames on it and guards there. It's more of a sort of secular temple. Once again, we come back to this idea of a, a religion around the war, a cult around the war. And Putin goes to visit Stalingrad regularly on the anniversary of the war, and this is treated like a pilgrimage. It is vital to his power to show that he's, he's paying tribute. He's behaving in this reverential and worshipful way when he goes to visit the Stalingrad, recalls the memory of the war, and says, I am the descendant. I'm the inheritor of this kind of power, this kind of debt that we still owe to our ancestors, to our fathers and grandfathers. And the government has pr pumped tons of money into producing works of art about the war. Some of them are more successful, some of them less successful. But there was a 2013 movie, Stalingrad, which is a blockbuster movie. Good quality movie. It's, it's a pretty decent film. This was the biggest box office success in Russian domestic history. People want to go and see this stuff. This is not just being foisted on them from, from above. And you see that in Russian culture. Some of you might have read about this idea of the immortal regiment. Around the Victory Day celebration, so 9th of May, what we would know as VE Day, the Russians call Victory Day, huge, important national holiday in Russia, there was a movement started a few years ago, and it was a grassroots movement where ordinary people go out and go on a march, go on a parade through the streets of their local towns, and they hold images of their ancestors who died or fought in the war, and they, they pay tribute, they sing patriotic songs, they sing songs from the war, they read poetry, they read stories, and commemorate what happened. Again, in this very religious way, because holding up those pictures of their relatives recalls the Russian emphasis on iconography, on holding icons, taking them into battle and worshipping saints through icons. But this is a grassroots movement. It's been somewhat co-opted by the government, but it was, it was produced by just a couple of ordinary people out in the Russian provinces somewhere, and it just caught on like wildfire. People wanted to do it, and people wanted to do it so much that even in, in Canada, there are towns in Ontario where on Victory Day you will find Russian expats who are not traditionally known for being pro-Putin and pro-Soviet and sort of raving Stalinists. They're going out with their families and they're gathering and they're, they're dressing up in the, the garb of World War II and going out and remembering their relatives and trying to understand what happened in the 1940s in this absolutely brutal fighting and trying to, I think, find some sense of national pride and some sense of significance of what happened in what was a very dark century for Russians. Before we go, I'm actually quite interested, I, I need to know more about this, is the Stalingrad and science fiction, is it actually a thing? Because that is just really, really weird. It, it is a thing. So... Before, to answer, I never answered you a question about Donetsk and Ukraine. So as soon as the fighting in Ukraine started, people started writing works imagining Donetsk, the fighting in Donetsk, where some of the heaviest fighting was, as the new Stalingrad. And you'll see this time and time again, that Russians are trying to find the new Stalingrad. And one of the interesting, weird kind of subcultural phenomena that's been going on for the last few years is this writing of 
pulp fiction novels of science fiction Stalingrad or time, time travel Stalingrad, typically where people from the present fall back in time through some, you know, whatever plot device it is, it's usually pretty flimsy, and get to refight Stalingrad. Or where people from the past are sort of shot forward in time and fight Stalingrad in the future, usually by beating back sort of terrible American imperialist overlords who are badly cloaked as um, aliens or something like that. I think this is a way in culture of working out that that sense of, of debt that was put upon people by the regime in the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. This sense that you, you can never really quite ascend to the echelons of power. You can never quite have a meaningful identity yourself because you never fought in the war. Your parents did, your grandparents did. Therefore, they did something meaningful. meaningful. They made the greatest sacrifice. Off they went to stare death in the eye and 25 million of them did die. But you're just an ordinary person. And so we get this kind of meeting of macho nationalist culture and it is extremely macho. It's extremely um, misogynistic mostly with using sci-fi and sort of more modern tropes as a way of working out the self and being able to participate in a culture that otherwise would be by design inaccessible ian thank you so much for coming on uh, there, there's so much to think about um coming out of what you've said for me i know um a really fascinating look at the russian cultural responses to the second world war thank you you're very welcome Join us tomorrow when we will be marking the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution. We will be talking to Leander Delisle about Anne's rise to power. We will be talking to Tracy Borman just before the onset of her new TV series about Anne's fall. She'll be telling us all about the events that led to her execution. And we'll also be talking to Lauren Mackay, who's written a book, The Wolves at Court, which deals with Thomas and George Boleyn. So we'll find out a bit more about them. Don't forget, you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month it would help us to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis which we would dearly love to do you can do this at www.historyhack.podbean.com there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders indeed the regulations are very clear in the matter it is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Ben. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.